electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this Friday, the worst week for stocks since October, raising some big questions now about where your money is heading next. Our investment committee debating and discussing that very question. Joining me for the hour today, Steve Weiss, Pete Nigerian, Jason Snipe is the principal of Odyssey Capital Advisors. Brenda Vangelo is the CIO of Sandhill Global Advisors. Take a look at the markets. Stocks are lower, as you know, across the board. Dow's down 145. S&P's down one half of 1%. That's a loss of 21 and a half. NASDAQ is off the lows. It is still pretty much a loser today, down one half of 1%. Russell's getting hammered. A bit more than uh, the other three, down one and three quarters. Show you the, uh, one of the IPOs of the week. Uh, Driven Brands is now open for business. It is trading. We've got the CEO coming up in just a little bit to talk about his stock's 28% rise right off the open today. So we'll keep an eye on that. In the meantime, I'm keeping a close eye on Steve Weiss today because, Weiss, you've got some real interesting moves uh, that we need to discuss. And I know our viewers are going to be interested to hear, okay? You've got puts now. You bought puts in Apple and the ecosystem. Skyworks. Qualcomm, you got puts in Micron. Let's talk about those first. You've got short calls in Corvo as well. What's up with that? So, so I, I was I reached out to Pete yesterday because I was interested in uh, in buying some protection in the portfolio. And Pete's my personal shopper when it comes to options. And I'm looking what to do. So even though the VIX is down, volatility is down, some of the options are actually still pretty expensive depending upon the underlying equity. But I'm getting a little nervous about the market. Even though the market's not had a great week, actually, if you look at those stocks, they've had a phenomenal week. And those are the core of my portfolio when you throw in Taiwan Semi there. So because it's extended, even though I think these stocks, each of the ones you mentioned, uh, maybe with the exception of Micron, could go up five to tenfold over the next five to ten years because of 5G, which would become extremely dominant. I thought short term, let's get some protection. I wasn't in, interested in selling those stocks and, and triggering a tax event, but I was interested in taking some protection out. So that's what was behind it. Why, why are you nervous about the market? Well, those stocks in particular have had just a meteoric rise recently. And when you take a look at, at Taiwan Semi, which is up about 12 percent at one point yesterday, that's a big move. And you've also got a lot of good news out. So I don't think it's any secret, particularly with Biden last night coming out with one point nine trillion in stimulus for covid. That he's going to come out with another two to four trillion in infrastructure. Then you've got the first hundred days, which are not going to be great. Because it's still you've got so much anger between the parties and the administration that I think you've got to see the enthusiasm temper a little and then you'll go back in. Markets don't go up in a straight line. There's always some risk to it. We've gone through a lot of the risks. And now I think that you'll take that pause, take that breath, and then it'll be back off to the races. But, you know, five to 10 percent down is not out of the question and I just thought this was the timing to do it. Interesting. Brenda, is it, is it nervous time? 
Well, I think the fact that this is the worst week since October is a testament to just how strong this market has been. Um, we've had an incredibly strong move, especially in areas outside of large cap, so small cap equities in particular. But as we look forward, um, I think it, it's would be healthy to see some kind of correction or pause here. I agree with Steve that, you know, after last night's announcement, the, the biggest question is, well, now what? Um, I think we need to get more confirmation that uh, the vaccine is rolling out um, it, more as planned and that economies can really start reopening. And that's, it's going to be a little while before we get there. But as we look to the second half of this year, we still feel very strongly that we're going to see a meaningful pickup um, in, in the second half of this year and into next year. So we are staying invested, um, but we've been shifting away, as Steve sounds like he has been too, away from more uh, technology growth driven sectors into more cyclical sectors where we see more opportunity. Jason, this idea that you know, growth has been underperforming and the notion that until growth gets its mojo back, um, the market in general is going to have a hard time breaking out of this, if you want to call it range that it's been in, sort of, you know, fits and starts here and there. It looks like it could be about to break out and then it reverts back. Do you subscribe to that? I do, Scott. So I think, you know, when I think about uh, this, the Biden agenda, it's a new agenda. I think the market's trying to digest uh, what that looks like. You know, the 10 years up almost 50 percent over the last three months. I mean, there's some inflationary concerns going on. And obviously we have fiscal stimulus sloshing around. Uh, So I think those are areas that are accelerating the value trade. And, you know, this year will be all about earnings growth. You know, and I think what we'll start to see over the next couple of quarters is particularly as we head into earnings seasons with the banks uh, today and going into next week, show me. Show me. I think it's all about show me right now. We'll see how that how that works out over the next few weeks. Yeah. Pete, look, you you've been, I guess, a little more concerned of late about where the market is. And you've you've, you know, sold down some of your your equity positions to reflect that that caution or tepidness that you may have about about where the market is. But what do you do with the fact that growth has been outperforming? You know, I think Carrie Firestone yesterday said that she had trimmed a little bit of Apple. Now you got Weiss playing the options in Apple, looking for maybe some downside among the suppliers as well. What about you? Because Apple's a a pretty decent position for you, too. Yeah, uh, I've done a little bit of almost the opposite because the implied volatility in some of these. uh, And and Steve is right. There are some names that the implied volatilities are higher than you might expect because where the VIX has dropped down into the low to mid 20s from where it was at a much higher levels. Um, But the reality is in some of some of these names, the implied volatilities are low and they do give you an opportunity. And I've actually, as you know, I added some calls just the other day in Apple. So I do think that there is. You know, this pause, and we've had this pause for a while now, and sooner or later I think we'll see um, some moves again. The one move that I did make last week, and we talked about it last Friday, was I had been long spider calls, and then I flipped that around, sold out of that position, and I have spider puts. And that's basically the hedge that I've got for my portfolio. It's very similar to trading the VIX, but it's a much more liquid prop uh, 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 ability to be able to move in and out the way I'd like to. So that's why I moved over to the spider. But I'll tell you, It's amazing to look at what we have seen to the upside, Scott, in these runs. And I understand why Steve, you know, when we were talking yesterday, it makes some sense of why he wanted to do some of that covering. Because take a look at the SMH. You know, we talk about tech all the time, but specifically the semiconductors. And you take a look at any chart at almost any time frame you want. And all it looks like is a basically straight up. It's had an absolute rocket ship of a run. It's gone to highs. You look over at biotech, same sort of story. It's gone to highs. So 
those are a good, good reflection of why we're seeing the NASDAQ as that's gone to highs as well, because it has been a pause that we've seen out of technology, but other aspects of NASDAQ have been performing really, really nicely. So I think it's just a matter of, of, of how much nervousness you have, whether or not you want to take positions actually off, well, you want to have protection in place. And I think protection is, it does make a lot of sense. I think Steve's protection made a lot of sense for what he was looking for from the, from the market over the next couple of weeks. But, you know, are you using the SMH to make a point that that's, that is a point of strength within the market, Pete? Because Steve yes. is not only doing his options plays as it relates to Apple and the eco, he's short mm-hmm. the SMH, right? Weiss, I mean, that's a new trade for you. You're shorting the SMH just as Pete is making the case as to why it is something to hang on for a pocket of strength in the market. Right. So let me explain why I did that. There are certain stocks that I want to take protection out also that I want to hedge the position without giving up the position. And the options in those, as Pete pointed out, the implied vol was just too great. So since a lot of that exposure, whether it's Teradyne or TSM, as we talked about, I couldn't do anything there in the option market. So the SMH became my short. So I came in today, short the SMH and pre-decent size, already covered half that short position as I covered the Qs that I was short uh, because it's just short-term pop. Now, if you take a look at the numbers, to Pete's point, that are coming out from Hanhai, which is Foxconn, their December revenue numbers were up 34% year over year. Taiwan, we heard about yesterday. So you're going to see explosive quarters from Corvo, from Skyworks, and probably from Apple as well. But short term, those companies don't report for a few weeks. Apple will be the soonest at January 29th. I want to protect against market concerns, not stock concerns. I have not, just to clarify what Brent said, I have not moved away from tech at all. This is purely a market call. But do you think that it's concerning or or not, Steve, that growth has underperformed and to some, like Doug Cass and others, value looks stretched at the same time? You know, candidly, it's a great question, but that's not really how I'm looking at the world. I'm doing bottoms up. And I don't think the growth stocks, my core positions have underperformed. As a matter of fact, they've hit all-time highs over the last week, week and a half. So that's why, going back to your point, with growth or tech coming in a little bit, some of it from regulation, I thought that these stocks hitting all-time highs, while they deserve to on fundamentals, maybe it'll take some gas in the near term. You know, Brenda, it's not like the street is moving any way away from growth, especially mega cap like the, the one we're talking about, Apple and others. Uh, because there's a positive call on Apple today as well. There is on Amazon. Top pick at Morgan Stanley. Uh, among the large caps, they say we remain bullish. Amazon, 3900 is the price target. That's 25% upside from where we are now. Strengthening prime behavior they're talking about. How about it, Brenda? You, you own it, right? Amazon, yes. So we do own Amazon. And I think if we look within that universe of large cap tech companies, or in this case, consumer, cross between consumer and tech, you know, we think Amazon's well positioned. One thing we're worried about with many tech companies like Apple in particular is that when um, 
this next year rolls around, the share of wallet share will change as consumers shift their spending patterns to spend on other things other than consumer electronics. But as it relates to Amazon, we think that this is a lasting um, trend that people have become more accustomed to shopping online. We think that's here to stay and is likely going to be increasing over time. So we continue to think that the company is very well positioned in that regard. Jason, uh, Amazon's in your book, too. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with Brenda's points here. E-commerce is, is just the way to it's the way of the future. Um, you know, obviously, Amazon got a lot of lot of opportunity, a lot of a lot of growth throughout the pandemic. And that will likely continue even post pandemic as we operate in a hybrid economy. It's just easier to do things that way. And I think Amazon will continue to benefit. What, what's your view on, on Netflix? It's going to report earnings next week. And it's, you know, the first of the fangs to report. It's going to be important, especially where there's a good debate being had on the street as well. Disney versus Netflix. Which of the Internet stocks is going to be the best bang for your buck at this point? What about Netflix? So I continue to like Netflix. I think there was a little bit of a pullback, a little softness in the subscriber growth uh, over the last past quarter. You know, they 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 pulled a lot of demand forward with the early part of the pandemic as people are streaming content uh, more than they normally would have. But I like Netflix long term, you know, for the adult content. I think it's this is a scenario where you could actually own both. I think both are good plays uh, here. And, you know, for me on the Disney side, I just missed it early on. And I'm just waiting for a pullback to to get some some shares there. It's funny, Pete, you know, for a while, people looked at Netflix and said, well, that's the crown jewel between Disney and, and Netflix. You'd be hard pressed at a certain point of time to have people say, you know, no, Disney's the one. Disney's stolen all the thunder. Now, I'm not talking about from a business standpoint. Yeah. I'm simply talking from a headline standpoint. Who's talking yeah. about Netflix yeah. on this program lately? It's been Disney <laughs> for, up to 170, yeah. right? And maybe it's because Dan Loeb mm-hmm. got involved and started talking about putting more money towards streaming and they delivered and the stock just went absolutely through the moon at a point where Netflix really mm-hmm. didn't do all that much. Not to say or take, Pete, anything away from the business itself of Netflix, but it seems as though Disney's stolen a lot of the headlines. Well, well, and they absolutely did. And they did because of the fact that they went right after Netflix with with the streaming. And we talked about this years ago. We talked about, wow, what a great acquisition it would have been for Disney to buy Netflix. Well, it never happened. So they finally did do what everybody was expecting them to do over time, which is how are they going to get into that competitive area? They've got all the content it feels like in the world, but how are they going to get into the streaming world? Well, they did. They jumped in and they absolutely skyrocketed and the timing could not have been better because of the fact that everybody had to stay at home. Now, when you look forward at Disney, I think there are positives that you could look at, you could point to for Netflix. But when you look to Disney, you could say, well, what about this? What about when they start to be able to reopen, when, when things really start to open up for all the other business segments of Disney? And I think that's what people are focusing on now. And that's why I think we talk about Disney. Disney steals all the headlines. Netflix, by the way, meanwhile, has done an outstanding job of doing exactly what they should be doing, which is focusing on the future. And their future is not only international, but they are doing an absolutely magnificent job in a lot of other different categories. And one of the things that Morgan Stanley points points out is they expect to see free cash flow to really start to be real flow when you get into 2022. So there's a lot of real optimism, I think, still out there for Netflix. But the reality is you're 100 percent right, Scott. Disney has stolen the headlines and it's all because of the streaming. Well, what about also, Weiss, it's like a return to life play uh, for Disney over a Netflix. Does that 
come into play, Weiss at all? I mean, look, I've got – look, I don't remember the last time you had a, a slew of sort of cautious notes from the street about Netflix, so I can't, you know, speak to the historical value of that. But Bank of America on Netflix today, lowering their sub outlook for 2021. UBS, still see muted risk-reward. Forward picture, short-term remains unclear. I mean, I'm not used to reading notes that seem to express such caution about Netflix. You look at the stock performance. I'm looking at it right in front of me on my screen, and we can show all of you as we're having this conversation. Three months, Disney, up 35%, we'll call it. Now I punch up Netflix over the last three months. What's that stock done over the last three months, Weiss? It's down 7.5%. That sort of speaks to not only stealing the headlines, but stealing some of the stock thunder, too. Yeah, so... You make another great point, and it pains me to say that more than once during the show. <laughs> the story with, with Disney is so much different than Netflix at this point. The story with Disney is that you've got a reopening play, and you've got the new kid in the block. So if you were a Netflix shareholder, and you want a two-prong attack right now, and Netflix, let's face it, phenomenal company. It's my go-to for streaming. As opposed to Disney, my kids are growing there out, so it may be different. But... When I go to Disney, when I look at Disney as a stock and I don't own it, love to come back. And if you're a Netflix shareholder, you say, you know what? Maybe there's an element of Netflix that was stay at home. And maybe those subscribers then peter away as the economy reopens. So why not go to Disney, which is lower down on the growth right now curve in terms of what they have, but exploding to the upside with their offering. And I get the bonus of the parks opening. So I think that's what people have been going through. And let's face it, last few quarters from Netflix, the costs have been a little out of control, as you'd expect. They don't really care. I mean, you know, Reed Hastings runs, runs a company like Bezos, runs Amazon. Don't really care about quarter to quarter. It's about the long-term play. Disney has a different set of shareholders. They care about now and the future. Right. There's another interesting call, uh, Jason, that I wanted to talk to you about. I know you don't own Zoom, uh, but I'll tell everybody why I'm coming to you on this. Um, Name the highest conviction pick for 2021 over at Bernstein. Everybody knows the incredible year that Zoom has had. Lately, not so much. It's down 27 percent over the past three months. Stocks lost some of its thunder for sure. I come to you because you sold another stock that had a magnificent run during COVID and stay at home. And that's DocuSign. So I just wonder is, you know, if I I know that Bernstein has a high conviction for Zoom, but what your DocuSign sell says about the trade overall. Yeah, so it's a great point. uh, Both fronts, even if I kind of connect the two, Zoom and DocuSign. Zoom for me, I mean, great product, great company. I think they've done a lot of great things. They were up 400 percent last year. You know, I've, I kind of look at it going into 2021 and saying, OK, we're going to get this vaccine out. We'll get back to normalcy at some form at some at some point this year, hopefully the second half of this year. I just don't see the tremendous upside that the analysts are talking about. Um, I do think we'll get back to in person um, and working, working with each other in person. So I, I don't see the tremendous upside there. But and, and I look at DocuSign. DocuSign was just portfolio management for us. I mean, it was up 200 percent last year as well. You know, uh, a great company. We're getting away from paper, no doubt about it. Um, electronic signature is the way of the future. 
But again, I think as we kind of look at the, the market and how it's rotating and uh, you know where interest rates are and, and potentially some inflationary concerns, I just think there's just some of that capital could be put to better use in other places. Okay. I mean, maybe one of those places certainly of, of late uh, has been the banks. That brings me to the banks uh, because they did kick off earnings season today. As, as you know, <clears throat> excuse me, we can show you the performance because the stock complex is down. And I go back, Pete, to what we talked about and certainly what Kramer, I mean, Kramer told you this was likely to happen, right? Like three weeks ago. And we discussed it on the show. It's not like he didn't like the banks. He said, you can like the banks. There's reason to like the banks. But when earnings come around, the stocks are probably going to go down. Let's talk Wells first. Okay, it's getting hit the hardest today. And the stock really started moving lower on the Sharf uh, call, the conference call. Charlie Sharf, CEO. Mm. I come to you on it because you own Wells, as does Stephanie Link. Yep. What do you do now, Pete? In, in the case of Wells, I own the call, Scott, 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 because I was expecting that potentially, if they actually did um, hit the earnings the way I expected them to, they beat on earnings, but they missed on the, on the uh, revenue side. And so that was a little bit of a disappointment. And, uh, and so I was looking for the calls because I thought I had an opportunity for any kind of a pop to the upside. But this isn't uh, something new. The trend has been there for a while, Scott, where even when we've seen record numbers from a J.P. Morgan or whomever, um, we do see sell-offs initially. Now, what really happens in the next week or two after that, that's something that I think we're going to be examining very closely as we get deeper into earnings next week. But I think the reality is, yeah, when you miss on revenue, the opportunities were there for the financials. Let's also not forget, basically, J.P. Morgan was up, a call it 40 percent from where they were just three months ago. Fifty eight percent, I think, for mm-hmm. City, 51 percent for Wells Fargo. So these are names that have absolutely sprinted. And it's almost like what could they say to get people to move them even higher immediately now? Obviously, they didn't even including J.P. Morgan. They did not deliver. But that's you know what? That's been the reaction for a while now. And I think we we have to sit back and say, all right, well, what will happen in the next week or two with some of these financials? Because those numbers were extraordinary for J.P. Morgan and they were very, very strong overall for city. But I think the the misses on, on the revenue side, that's what people were focused on. And that that's why those two names, Wells Fargo and city are down much more than J.P. Morgan. Let's right be now. clear. I mean, Kramer. Brenda called J.P. Morgan, or at least their quarter, the best he's ever seen. So there is there's, you know, no, no denying the quarter or the performance. But, you know, beating expectations after a stock like J.P. Morgan, which I'm looking at here up 36 percent over the past three months, just simply beating what maybe was a, you know, a moderate bar, if you will, doesn't get people excited. Chris Whalen, who watches this space and analyzes it as closely as anybody, says good quarter driven entirely by lower provisions. I mean, that that does speak to the quality of the beat, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think when we look at the banks, I mean, just the fact that J.P. Morgan um, is bringing down reserves is a positive all around for everybody. Uh, right. The fact that they're seeing less risk there and have the comfort to do that. I also think the investment banking business has been a surprise positive. Six months ago, I don't think we ever would have expected that we would see an IPO market like we've been seeing over the last several months. Um, So there are some clear positives. Also, the fact that the yield curve has steepened a little bit is certainly good. And I think that could be maintained over here. We're not expecting significantly more steepening from here. But we think these current levels of the 10-year above 1% could be sustainable. And it should make for a better environment uh, for the banks 
as we head into Q1 and Q2. I should also let you know that the Wells Fargo CFO is going to be on the closing bell today. So you don't want to miss uh, that interview for more perspective on that business and why the stock is reacting the way it is. I want to continue in a second with you, Weiss, but let me just let everybody know that yet another IPO has opened for trade, Platika. You saw the CEO on in the last hour with the Squawk Alley gang. There's that stock. It is up about 29 percent right now. So PLTK having a nice open there. We'll keep our eye on that this Friday as well. All right, Weiss. So the bank conversation steers next week when you've got more companies reporting. Bank of America, which you own, Goldman Sachs, which you own. And by the way, Goldman hit a new all-time high just yesterday. So do you take the stock performance from today's reporters and worry about what's going to happen next week with these that you own? No, actually, I feel better if the stock sold off this quarter. And and I think that, you know, Wells Fargo is a unique thing. Charlie Sharp, I don't know him, much Herald CEO, superstar. He's been there for a year now. And I think that traders went in and investors went in and say, OK, he's overdue to report a beat. Well, guess what? He hasn't. So you're letting a little air out of that bubble in terms of city. Again, CEO transition. When you have J.P. Morgan, B of A, you have two of the best CEOs, perhaps in the S&P. And then you throw in Goldman, which is making de- definitive moves to increase their growth rate. You know, I'm very comfortable in those positions. So I'll stay there. And then you also have, don't forget, the 10-year has retreated somewhat in terms of the rate. In terms, You know, we went up to 1.12. Now we're down below 1.10. The trend's a little bit further down. So I think that also caused some weakness. But, you know, to Jim Cramer, had a great call in the quarter. But saying this is the best quarter J.P. Morgan ever had, I think is a misstatement. That doesn't come from lowering your reserves. That comes from driving your growth. Completely different things. Lowering reserves is not a sustainable driver to earnings. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I paraphrased Jim, and, and maybe I did it um, incorrectly, but the, the bottom line is he was extraordinarily high on J.P. Morgan's quarter. There, there's no question ab- about that, uh, as were a lot of people. It's not like their right. results were, were, were an issue. Should be. No, yeah. it should be. The, the other yeah. point I think worth hitting here is you feel like, and I mean, Josh has talked about this, too, is that fintech is where the action is, right, in, in the financials. Everybody talks about fintech. Weiss, but you, you and if you include Visa in that, I don't know if you do. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people do. You sold Visa, though. Why? I did. I've, I've looked to sell Visa. The, the stock's really been an underperformer. If you take a look at where it is now, it's where it was pre-COVID. Yet some things have happened since then. So I, w- I, w- I didn't count on I was going to sell this week. And then they walked away from the plaid deal because of antitrust concerns, stock traded down. So it got a little bounce uh, the next day, and that's when I sold it. Um, the reason being is that there's a focus, an antitrust focus on Visa and MasterCard that started under the Trump administration and will continue into the Biden administration. Additionally, they've become sort of like old line stocks, like, like the autos were to Tesla. And you've seen the money go into what's true fintech, like PayPal and Square, which have obscene valuations at this point. Which just got so I a, thought the competitive... Which just got a, I'm sorry to interrupt you, which PayPal, by the way, just got a yeah. new street high today of 350 over at Mizuho, right? So they just keep chasing this thing right on up. <laughs> it, it's crazy. It's crazy. And yeah, I missed it. I owned Square for a nanosecond and uh, two years ago, and I think sold at 75. I mean, so to me, that's lunacy. And I'd rather stick with what I know, where I know the growth's there, where I know the numbers support the stock price. If not here, maybe a little bit 
lower on current numbers, not going out three years, five years, and just hoping mm-hmm. it does it. It's much too competitive a space, and people lose sight of that. Jason and Brenda don't think it's lunacy at all on PayPal because they both own it, and they're very happy that they do. We will take a quick break. We'll come back. Automotive services company Driven Brands is surging on its IPO debut today. We have an exclusive interview with its CEO. We'll do that next in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. In Washington, the National Mall and landmarks like the Lincoln and Jefferson Memorials will be closed through at least the day after the inauguration. The Park Service says the move is being done to ensure safety and security. President Trump will reportedly leave Washington on the morning of the inauguration and land in Florida while he is still president. NBC News says the plans, though, are still fluid. The Pentagon says it has reached its goal of reducing the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan to 2,500. That drawdown may have violated a congressional ban on such troop reductions. And in the Netherlands, Prime Minister Mark Rutte and his entire cabinet have resigned. They have accepted political responsibility for a scandal involving wrongful fraud charges against thousands of child welfare recipients. You are up to date, Scott. That's the news update. Back to you. I right, appreciate that, Sue. Thank you, Sue Herrera. Driven Brands is surging on its IPO debut. Leslie Picker joining us now with that company's CEO in a CNBC exclusive interview. Let's take it away. Hey, thanks, Scott. And thank you, Jonathan Fitzpatrick, the CEO of Driven Brands, uh, which has Mako and Meineke among its many brands of car service companies. Uh, so, OK, stock is up. 30% you priced above the range were able to raise $800 million. So I just want to kind of level set with the audience. Can you help bring us into the room, bring us under the hood, so to speak, of what the conversations were like with Morgan Stanley or other bankers about the decision to go public, why you chose to do that, and why you chose to do that right now? Yeah, thanks, Leslie. Um, look, it comes down to a dream that I've had with my my awesome private equity sponsors for five, six years. We believe Driven Brands will be a great public company. We're long-term employees, long-term sort of horizon as we think about the business. We're 83% franchised. Our franchisees are incredible folks. And, you know, we, we will do really well in the public market. So this was a dream that we've been working on for, for multiple years. In some ways, your story is a pandemic story like many of the companies that have gone public recently in that, A lot of people are buying cars in the pandemic. A lot of people are buying used cars in the pandemic that then need to be serviced. Uh, Additionally, you were deemed essential businesses, and most of your affiliations were able to stay open during the pandemic, during the lockdowns and so forth. I'm curious, how sticky are the tailwinds, and what is in the data analytics that you've obtained from your franchisees and your own shops? Uh, What have they informed you about the state of the consumer right now? 
Yeah, look, our, our industry is awesome, Leslie, right? It's a, it's a $300 billion growing industry. Driven Brands has delivered 12 consecutive years of same-store sales growth. Our franchisees did amazing in 2020. You know, they did stay open. But our franchisees are true owner-operators, so they stayed open and, and they did great. So we bounced back pretty quickly in terms of, uh, you know, the short-term impact in Q2, uh, sequential growth Q2, Q3, Q4. So really pleased with how 2020 shaped up. And then what's unique about Driven Brands is we collect incredible data about our customers from both our company and franchise stores. Unlike a lot of other retailers, our customers willingly give us their name, their address, their phone number, their email address, and we have a pretty sophisticated data lake where then we can sort of mine that data and use it to improve both our franchisees and our company stores. And what is that data telling you right now about the consumer and the health of the auto market in general? You know, Leslie, we provide uh, auto services, right? And they're essential needs-based auto, auto services. I think the other thing is our core customer has a retail, our retail core customer has a $60,000 household income. They drive cars that are nine years of age. They have about 100,000 miles on it. So our core customers have been driving, you know, throughout 2020 and will continue to drive for many, many years to come. So our, our core customer has been, you know, driving and, and living their life and getting their cars fixed and services and service. So we feel really good about, you know, how we performed in 2020, but more importantly, how we're going to continue to perform in the future. Well, let's talk about the future, um, because on this show and across CNBC, we've talked a lot about electric vehicles lately. The public markets seem to not be able to get enough of both electric vehicle companies and companies exposed to the electric vehicle arena. I'm curious, how does your business fit into that, especially as you know your, your core competencies are in areas like oil changes and certain car parts? Are you positioned to capitalize in a world that could you know, be moving more into the direction of electric vehicles in the future? Yeah, look, it's a terrific question and one to get all the time. But, you know, again, our core customer has this household income of $60,000. Their cars are older. They've got higher mileages on them. So they're typically not that sort of EV adopter. I think the other thing is that the numbers don't lie, Leslie, right? We've got 275 million vehicles on the road in the United States today. The average age of those vehicles is almost 12 years of age, right? So that pool of total addressable market for us continues to grow every year. So we, we don't see any material impact in our core business, you know, for, for multiple, multiple years, arguably decades, just because of the size and, and scale of our total addressable market today. Another key characteristic of Driven Brands is that it's essentially a byproduct of a roll-up strategy. The company has done 40 acquisitions over the last five years. Where would you say you are in uh, in that roll-up strategy cycle? Do you see yourself doing more deals as a public company or fewer deals as a public company? Yeah, we, we've been super successful with our M&A strategy. And look, it's helped us get great people in our organization. Three of our leadership team have come from those acquisitions. We get to get share um, so, you know, M&A has been a, a big part of our past. We've not built it into our future, future projections. So, you know, we will be a double-digit revenue grower, a double-digit EBITDA grower organically. But given that, you know, we've been super successful, we will continue to be sort of opportunistic and look at M&A opportunities when they come along. But again, not in our future financial projections. Well, now you do have a public currency to do that. Uh, DRVN is the ticker now up 30 
percent. Jonathan Fitzpatrick, CEO of Driven Brands, we appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I'm going to send it back over to Scott. All right. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you very much. That's Leslie Picker. All right. Pete's new trades in unusual activity are coming up next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We are back on the half right after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. It's that time. Unusual activity, Pete. Yeah, I'll tell you what, we had some pretty interesting ones. Now, we've seen a few airlines hit recently, Scott, but we've also seen that ETF Jets hit fairly frequently. As a matter of fact, today, a nice size trade coming in there in in this particular name with a buyer of 5,000 of the March 25 calls. And it's, it's pretty interesting because what they're doing is spreading it off. They don't expect an absolutely explosive move to the upside, but they're looking for upside because they're hedging by selling twice as many of the 30 calls. Forget about those 30s for a second. These March 25 calls are going for about a dollar. Stock was trading around 22.72. So a pretty interesting trade there. I like seeing that. Just yesterday, I added JetBlue because we had some option paper in there as well. So next, I'm going to give you, and it's, this dovetails right in with what we were just hearing from Leslie, but Borg Warner. So take a look at this one. 6,500 of the March 37 and a half calls bought for about $3. So we don't see that name very often. So that makes it a little bit more unusual as well. Stock was trading about 38.30. So this is a stock that's just, these are just in the money calls looking for some sort of a move to the upside. And they get a little bit more bang for their buck because of the fact they're not out of the money. They're not at the money. They're in the money call. So this one I think is a pretty interesting trade as well. I am in the Jets trade. I am not in the BW that just hit just a few moments ago. All right, good stuff. Good to know. Thank you, Pete. As always, Thanks. coming up, energy stocks yep. may be pulling back today. Still, though, the leading sector this quarter, having a great week, too. We're going to get into the trade with the committee. We'll do it next. And as we go to break, take a look at some of this week's biggest stock gainers. You got GameStop, you got Tilray, Bed Bath & Beyond, Stitch Fix, and the Shack, Shake Shack. We're back right after this. Uh, welcome back. Told you about oil sliding today. There it is, uh, about two and a half percent for WTI. Still, it's been a great week and a great run for energy stocks. Great timing, too, for a guest that we have on Tuesday. Legendary trader, one of the best ever, Mark Fisher, the CEO of MBF Trading. He has a new call in the space. He's going to share it with you. That is on Tuesday at 12 Eastern, right here on the Halftime Report. We are looking forward to that, given the climate in energy right now and where things may be heading. And speaking of which, let's debate this a little bit because I've had people come on this program of late and said this is legit, that this move is for real and has staying power. Um, Kramer today, in looking at what's happened with energy, guys, 
says it's just a trade. He's suspicious of the group. He said anti-fossil fuel assault. These are his words. The anti-fossil fuel assault from this government, speaking of the Biden uh, administration, is going to be real uh, and something to contend with. Yet, Brenda, you own Chevron. Pete, you own stock in Chevron and Exxon and Kinder Morgan. So, Brenda, to you first. I mean, how do you reconcile holding these stocks knowing what Kramer thinks is going to happen under a new Biden administration? Yeah, I think especially the more recent environment has been a testament to being uh, diversified, where, you know, nobody wanted to own a bank, no one wanted to own an energy company. And I see energy has really been the most hated sector uh, for a long time. But if we look forward, we see an environment where we really are going to get a pickup in transportation. It's going to happen globally. And that accounts for more than 50% of demand for oil. So we absolutely think that we're going to get a rebound. We're still very dependent on fossil fuels, even though the shift is um, and has been for some time shifting to more uh, sustainable energy sources. But nevertheless, we think there is uh, will likely continue to be a recovery here. And I think it it could take the market by surprise um, because everyone has just hated the sector for so long, whether it's for ESG reasons or simply because the industry has been under so much pressure over the past year. But we continue to think it makes sense to have some position there. How about the idea, Weissen? I mean, look, energy's been underowned institutionally, right? And for a reason, right? I mean, I, I think... You know, this commentary, if you will, around fossil fuels and ESG and a younger generation of investors don't want anything to do with stocks like Exxon or Chevron. And they're gravitating towards cleaner energy plays. You put that together with what Kramer is saying about expectations under a Biden administration. I mean, what does that mean for how these things trade moving forward? So I agree with Jim. I've been in clean energy for a while and haven't owned fossil fuel stocks for some time. Look, demand will come back. We saw in China that because they handled the virus better than we did, that demand for energy came back rather quickly. We're not seeing the same uptake just yet, but we will. But that's besides the point. Energy is an unlimited commodity. You can turn the spigot on and off. So you really don't have that pricing power except for short term. So it's always a trade. It's a trade up and it's trade down. I'm prepared to miss it. On ESG, you're seeing more and more pressure on funds not to own fossil fuels. And so I think you'll continue to see the selling. I just don't see the value there in a commodity. And to think that these stocks are anything more than commodity stocks is a mistake in my view. Clean energy is trading down a little bit. That's more market-related. Some fast money got in there. But, yes, this is going to be a very serious initiative by Biden. So I'd much rather be in those stocks and have my energy, have my energy exposure there than in fossil fuels. Okay. Well, Jason, I mean, if, if, if you wanted a controversial call in energy, you're getting it today uh, from Tom Lee. I, I say controversial because I think people are going to hear this and they may chuckle or they may have some other thoughts, too. I, I don't know. Tom Lee says 2021 energy FOMO is akin to the 2020 Tesla FOMO. OK, implying, Jason, that the run for energy could be meteoric. I don't know any other way to look at it if you're trying to compare it with what Tesla has done and the quote unquote fear of missing out as it relates to that trade and what that might mean, Jason, for energy. Yeah, that's a tough call for me on energy. I, I totally agree with Weiss here. You know, my focus has been on the Biden agenda 
you know, clean energy, all the flows that we're seeing from ESG. I agree that, you know, to a certain extent uh, on the fossil fuel end, yeah, there'll be demand coming into the second half of this year. But I don't think that's a future. And, I, and I'm and I'm not quite sure that, um, you know, that's where capital is going to be going, you know, going forward over the next few quarters. So clean energy is a way to go, you know, for me here on from an energy perspective. But the, you bought this, the one we're looking at right here, the ICLN. You got it. You got it. So, you know, like I said, I mean, ICLN for us was was a clean energy ETF. You know, again, that was the ESG play. You know, and and I understand the Kinder Morgans, the the Chevrons, the fully integrated fossil fuel companies. I do think there'll be return there. And and guess what? There has been over the last several months. But I'm just not full a full believer long term. I think that's that's just a trade for me. Okay, we have more trades just ahead on the half and don't miss a new season of american greed it's right here on cnbc monday 10 p.m eastern time we're back after this quick break it's time now for the futures outlook jeff kilberg gets to set up for a big week well, Scott, it is a big week ahead, and certainly we saw some bank earnings today, but next week we get really excited about some of the bank earnings out of Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. And this really speaks to the sensitivity of interest rates. We are seeing interest rates move. The 10-year note certainly saw a spike in yield up above 1.15%, but it's interesting. The trade that I want to present here, Judge, is the ability to participate in those yields coming back down. As we see those yields sell down to 1%, I want to use a technique that's typically only available to institutional investors, but it's called buying in on a stop. So in the event the yields go higher, we're not going to participate. But if we do see yields come back down and prices go back up to 137 even, I want to initiate a buy along position, being a buyer at 137 even. My target is at 138 even, taking a full point or 32 ticks out of it. But I will be mindful using a stop at 136.16. This trade is representing a two to one risk reward ratio. So I'm risking $500, Judge, to make $1,000. All right. Thank you, Jeff. We'll see how it all plays out next week. Coming up. Final trades. Time for finals. Pete, you're up first with a new buy. ESG or not, Devon Energy, Scott. You just bought that, right? Yes, sir. Yep. Good stuff. Jason, got to be quick. Then Brenda, quick. And then Steve. Zimmer Biomed, upside for elective surgeries. Brenda? Pfizer, 11 times earnings. Weiss? Vestas Wind Systems. All right. Good weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.